Welcome to The World Awaits. Travel tales to inspire your wanderlust. I'm Kirsty Bedford, journalist, editor and travel writer. And I'm Belinda Jackson, author, travel journalist and columnist. And we're your weekly co-hosts. Welcome back. The weather's warming and it's really starting to feel a lot like summer now. Have you been out there enjoying it, Belle? Oh, I really have. I hit the rail trails last weekend and, and I cycled most of the Great Victorian Rail Trail, which runs from Mansfield to Tallarook in central Victoria. And, and you know, it's really accessible from Melbourne. Uh, Tallarook is just off the Hume Highway an hour north of the city. So what's new about this trail is that it's also now an art trail. So there's a series of large-scale artworks placed along the trail. Yes. I mean, the artworks are great, but what I found more interesting were there's also 20 scar trees along there by artist and Tungurung elder Mick Harding. He's carved designs into the trees along the rail trail, and with a map you can spot them. I've got to say they're not always easy to find, especially when you're barreling along on a bike, but they're absolutely beautiful and worth keeping an eye out for. So, um, yeah, this trail, you cross the bridge over Lake Eildon at Bonnie Doon. Have you, have you watched The Castle, Kirsty? Of course. I'm an Australian citizen. It's a prerequisite, isn't it? Oh, yeah, like, <laughs> I know, right? We actually, we saw the house. We saw um, Serenity, the house there. It's, you know, you can rent it on Airbnb. It's so cool. Um, and we, and on that loop, you also go through the 200 meter Cheviot tunnel, which, um, which was constructed with handmade bricks for the train in 1883. And it gets, it gets really dark in the middle and I couldn't make the light on my bike work. I was on an e-bike. Can I just say for a disclaimer? Um, and uh, yeah, so there was a little, I was taking a video as well. There is a little wobbly bit in the middle. Um, but the trail also passes through some towns with really amazing food. A big shout out to Yay. Want to hear it? Yay! <laughs> and um, it has a really awesome cafe called Marmalades. And Yark, which has the gorgeous Boy and the Buck Cafe. And it also sells bumper stickers that read, Where the fuck is Yark? <laughs> <laughs> My God, how Aussie is that? I know, I and I'm, that, <laughs> that sounds like such a great trip. I'm still recovering, so I'm not out and about yet in this beautiful sunshine. But... um. So I'm incredibly jealous and have huge FOMO. But um, you can actually learn more about the Great Victorian Rail Trail at greatvictorianrailtrail.com.au. Right, we're going to kick off this week with some research by luggage storage specialists bounce on the most loved landmarks around the world. And while travellers are becoming increasingly more aware of avoiding over-tourism and the trend is to go to places that are a little more off-grid, we can't escape the fact that Many people do actually plan their entire trips around ticking off landmarks. Um, so I know you're all holding your breath in anticipation for the most loved landmark, and it is the Niagara Falls, which had more than 13 million visitors in 2022 and has been posted on Instagram more than 3.7 million times. And that was followed by the Taj Mahal, which had 3.3 million visitors in 2022. Yeah, that actually surprises me. I would have thought that the Taj had more people in Niagara. But anyway, um, third on the list is another US landmark, which is the Grand Canyon. And that had uh, 4.7 million visitors in 2022. And Big Ben, love Big Ben. It's so great to see it in real life. Isn't it? Yeah. Um, and that was followed by the Golden Gate Bridge and Dubai's skyscraper Burj Khalifa, which is pretty cool because you can go on top of it, which I don't think you can do on the Golden Gate Bridge, can you? I'm not sure about that one. Okay. Well, others are not surprisingly the Eiffel Tower. I mean, come on, everyone has to go to Paris and see the Eiffel Tower at least once in their lifetime. Although I have a funny story about that because when we went, my husband was so conscious of the uh, 
well, his his thoughts were that the 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 building wasn't the structure wasn't um really secure enough for him to venture right to the top. So he was going after the really better be killer. And, God, cool Kiwi man, eh? Um, and the Statue of Liberty and Australia made the list at number fifteen with Bondi Beach. I'm not really sure it's a landmark already in line with the others, but there you have it. Bondi Beach did make the list. Yeah, wouldn't you put the Opera House or the Harbour Bridge there as opposed to on the beach? I mean, all of the others, with the exception of the Grand Canyon, are man-made, as opposed to natural, you know, natural landmarks like Machu Picchu, London Eye, the Empire State Building was also on the list. We'd also love to hear from you about what your favourite landmarks are, so drop us a note at hello at theworldawaits.au. You're listening to The World Awaits. We'd love it if you could leave us a rating and review on your favourite podcast platform. Today, I'm chatting with travel writer Nina Karnakovsky about mindful travel. Nina's new book is called The Mindful Traveller, which I've just started reading, and it's absolutely fascinating. And she's also leading a wellness travel tour to the Himalayas next year with World Expeditions, which she tells me about in our interview. Take a listen. Nina, welcome to The World Awaits. Thank you so much for having me, Belle. Uh, It's so exciting having you on here because, you you know, you're a travel writer. I've been reading your byline for years. You've been writing for some of the biggest Australian and international publications. But you've steered your writing in a really different direction, in staying in travel, into mindful travel now. So tell us, what's mindful travel? Well, mindful travel incorporates all the ideas that are involved in sustainable and regenerative travel, which is something that I've been talking about for a few years before starting to talk about about mindful travel. Um, So giving more to places than you take, you know, thinking as a citizen rather than a consumer in destinations, lightening your carbon footprint, all those things, but then also adding to those elements kind of a more philosophical approach to our travels. So really getting clear on your intentions behind why you're taking each trip and what you might learn in the places you're visiting so that you are left as a more beneficial presence for the world, if you, if you will, um, for the world around you when you get back home. Um, and this is kind of, I came into this because I realised the travel industry is responsible for an estimated 8 to 10% of the world's carbon emissions and things like degraded wilderness areas and over-touristed towns and the erosion of culture and all those things that we're aware of. But on the flip side of that, it also accounts for one in 10 jobs. It teaches us tolerance. It broadens our worldviews. And for people like you and me, it is our bread and butter. So for me, it was just important to do it in a way that was more connected, um, you know, to myself, to the communities that I visit and to the natural world. And I just want to share that idea with as many people as possible. That's a really, that actually you've encapsulated it really well that you give more than you take. And, and we, you know, we were having a chat just before this about how, how travel writers, how we work, um, you know, we work at a frantic pace when we're on the road, but this is, this is about time, you need time to travel like this. And this ties in with another string that you're adding to your bow, which is uh, you're leading a 14 day hiking tour through the Nepalese Himalayas with world expeditions next year. So how, how is that, how is, how do you do that mindfully? You know, this is a 14 day trip. You've got eight days of trekking up to Everest. Um, it, what, uh, how do you bring that into, into play in such a journey? 
Yeah, well, it's really about slowing everything right down. And so it incorporates many different elements, but um, in a nutshell, it's about taking in the world around us on a on a more acute level. And kind of my uh, my ideal vision for this is that it widens people's aperture for awe. You know, I think we can travel at a pace that's so fast that we actually miss all of the wonder that's around us. And we're kind of just can be ticking boxes and getting things done and we kind of come home exhausted. This is almost the opposite of that. So you're you're doing things like, you know, we'll be walking in silence for portions of it. We'll definitely be walking at a slower pace. Um, I teach writing as a form of kind of self-inquiry. So we'll be journaling to, you know, really digest the places that we're in and reflecting on what's happening around us. And um, I'll be speaking about things like uh, taking less photographs. You know, I once um, interviewed <laughs> interviewed the, the uh, amazing artist Jimmy Nelson, who takes photographs of some of the world's last remaining tribes. And I said to him, what's your sort of most sustainable travel tip? And he said, well, here's, here's, a, here's a thought. How about you take one photograph each day? Because if you're doing that, you are inherently taking things very slowly. You're being very conscious of everything that you're seeing, everything that you're taking in. And I just loved that idea. I mean, we're not going, I'm not going to be forcing people to take one photo a day, but I love that that's a concept. And I think it's important for us to think about that so that we're not just snap, 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 and not even seeing the things that we're taking the photos of. Um, so we'll also be, you know, shopping with locals. So the money goes directly back into the economy. And maybe we'll touch on that a bit more in a minute. Um, you know, sitting with a Buddhist monastery where we're in and uh, with a Buddhist monk, I should say, uh, when we're in Kathmandu. So all of these beautiful, really nourishing experiences that will hopefully leave everybody with a much deeper link to this place that we've traveled all that way to visit. You know, that's, it's so different to, I mean, it's the, so different to the way we work, we travel as, as, as travel writers and as journalists, you are, you know, you know, you're always trying to be at the head of the pack. You've got to get that photo. You, you photograph everything. I take so many notes on my camera, you know, every sign, every guidepost, um, you're trying to cram that information in and then, then you come home and process it. So it's, it, it's such a different way. Like it's just, you know, the way, I mean, we've both traveled in that, that fashion for years doing the work yes. that we do. It's um, even just the, the, the pace that you're walking at. So when I was reading the itinerary of, of your upcoming tour, it was saying things like day six, you're walking 3,500 3, meters walk and that'll take four to five hours. So, I mean, how is that... Um, you know, bearing the fact that you're at altitude as well, is that, uh, how slow is that compared to how, how the average pace is for people walking on these sorts of things? Well, it will be, it's, it's definitely at a relaxed pace, but also this idea of kind of stopping, taking it in, stopping for breaks, you know, really, like I say, walking in silence, those sorts of things. Like I, just based on what you said before about the way that we can travel. So I just did this trip in Uluru. Um, it was a deep listening to nature retreat. And it really was just exactly everything that I'm talking about, where we we walked the circumference in silence as a group. 
and our facilitator, when we first arrived in Uluru, and bear in mind, I had been there already for three days with a girlfriend, and we had done the exact opposite of this. Um, we were taking all the photos and just having a great time together, and then we get there, and our facilitator said, okay, get out of the car when we were sort of, you know, probably 20 minutes still away from Uluru. And she said, just get out and look at Uluru from afar. But the most important thing is to let Uluru see you. And that was just such a powerful moment because it's like flipping a script to go, actually, yeah, if the natural world is the most important thing in this instance, and we want to all do better on behalf of the natural world, then that kind of shift in perspective can be really, really powerful. And there's this phrase that I love, solophilia. I don't know if, if you've ever heard that word. It was actually coined by an Australian about 10 years ago. And it's about this love of the living world and the in interconnectedness between every living thing. And I really think that that feeling is most powerfully inspired by these kind of slower hikes out in nature, which is such a salve for our kind of technologically addled brains. And, you know, there's, there's studies all from all around the world showing that being immersed in nature can make our brains healthier. It can increase our attention span, our creativity, lower blood pressure, all those sorts of things. Um, so I just think it's, it's such an urgent thing actually to slow down. Yeah, and I guess it, you know, it really is actually the antithesis of what has normally been the 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 Everest or you know the mm. Nepal trekking, and that is clocking up the miles, hitting the milestones, you know, pushing yourself, being harder, better, faster to win. You know, we've all seen those terrible photos of queues of climbers trying to make it, you know, trying to summit the peaks there, and and the and the degradation that happens to the landscape on the way. So. So traveling lightly in Nepal, um, how do you do that? Yeah, so I mean, you're exactly right. And there was also that documentary that came out about a year ago with the guy who tried to do all of the peaks in like, you know, some kind of record-breaking amount of time. Mm -hmm. So it becomes this kind of very macho thing of just getting to the summit. Um, but this is the opposite of that, where it's actually not about achieving the goal it's about trying to just inhabit the moment and trying to just be in that moment which I mean we hear that from indigenous cultures the world over of like that ability to just sink into the present moment and I think the Sherpa people um, in Nepal are inherently from what I have experienced they are they are in the moment all of the time and they are in just just inhabiting that. And so I think really getting to interact with the local community and with you know our Sherpa guide who'll be with us and doing things like, you know, spending money in the local community is another really important element of this kind of travel because you know, I'm sure um, some of your listeners are aware of this term leakage where it's like ninety five percent according to the UN World Tourism Organization, 
of the money that we spend as travelers leaks out of the destination we're in. And so what we want to do ideally as travelers is leave as many of our very powerful travel dollars in the community as possible. And that adds this whole extra element because if you're kind of talking to shopkeepers and going, oh, where was this made? And is this something that is important for this local community? Or, oh, hey, who owns this hotel or camp or whatever? Um, you're going to inherently develop a deeper relationship with that place because you're you're interacting and you're asking questions and you're you've got I think curiosity is is part is such a huge part of mindful travel and that that paying attention to things and really having an open mind so you can properly take it all in. So of course, some of the tips that you're giving us are not just about. Um, traveling in in Nepal but also the way that you know maybe we should be rethinking how we travel in general about um about how you spend your money where you're buying your take-home goods you know are you buying the block of triangular chocolate or um, <laughs> or are you actually buying something that's been paid by somebody that the money that the term of leakage is a really interesting um idea and also along the way you do visit uh, different projects around um uh, around Kathmandu and and on the way to visiting farming projects and yes other supporting yes yeah, so we're going to be visiting this regenerative uh, women's organic farming project and I mean that kind of incorporates two of the most important things when we're talking about this kind of more thoughtful travel one of which is the empowerment of women uh, because it's We've got many statistics around that too of when you support women, they then are able to support their entire family. They share the knowledge that they they gain from that experience and it really can uplift the whole community. Uh, and then also that organic farming element. I mean, we are becoming increasingly aware of the importance of soil health for the health of absolutely everything from our own guts to you know the the health of the very earth that we are living on um so being able to support initiatives like that is just such a, a powerful way to travel you know and it's they're everywhere around the world so it just takes a little bit more research and you can have some really life-changing experiences when you kind of work those into your travels. Like I, last year when I was in India, I went and visited a women's ethical fashion initiative called Sahili Women. And it was one of those experiences where not only did that mean that the travel dollars that I was putting into that trip were going to that initiative, but also I have never put on a piece of clothing since that trip without thinking of the hands who made that piece of clothing. And that's, that's a really transformative experience for the rest of your life. Amazing, amazing. And, like, and you've rounded up a lot of these experiences, ideas in, in your latest memoirs, memoir as well, haven't you? That's The Mindful Traveller. Yes. And, and the, last, uh, the last chapter of that is, uh, well, sorry, the second last chapter of that is actually set in Nepal because I, um, I've traveled there four times now, but the last time was last year and I stayed in the mid Himalayas in a tiny little village called Faplu in a place called the Happy House um, where, you know, it was just all of the things that we'll be doing on this trip were incorporated in that too. You know, the 
that hiking at a slower pace and giving that that particular hotel of 20 rooms uh, gives back to the local community. You know, it invests money into the local hospital and into the local monastery and into a biking project for kids to get them to go to school. Um, but also it's completely staffed by Sherpa people. So that means that you're just immersed in that world for the whole time and you're not kind of, um, you know, you're not the outsider looking in. You're kind of, you're really in it. Um, and so that will hopefully we'll be re recreating a lot of those moments uh, on this trip in April. Oh, it sounds really exciting and I think, a, you know, such a, a different mindset for people. And, um, and before I let you go, I'm going to ask you the question that we ask all our guests, which is, and I can't wait to hear this one, what is your most bizarre travel experience? Well, it's, it's actually making and drinking yak vodka in Mongolia, <laughs> which was as disgusting as it sounds. It was not only was it yak vodka, but it was hot yak vodka. And I know, and I don't know if any of your listeners have traveled to Mongolia, but Mongolian people are very into etiquette. You cannot turn anything down that is offered to you. So when you are offered some of this hot yak vodka, you have to drink it. And you have to continue drinking it. I know. Um, but it actually, it was just one of those most magical experiences where we were in the Orkon Valley and we were staying with a nomadic family um, and just seeing the way that the Mongolian nomads, they, they actually use every single thing in their environment. So there's no such thing as wastage. So this is why they're doing things like um, making yak vodka so nothing goes to waste. Can I ask, I have to ask the question, what, what part of yak is in the vodka? The milk. So it's like, it's like yak milk that is somehow fermented and then distilled. And it's, um, yeah, I guess that's why it's, it was still warm. And they also have this fermented mare's milk. So you have a choice of that or the yak vodka. So it's really, it's really quite interesting. And they make cheese from all these things too. And they offer you the cheese, which is sort of um, also very interesting. And it's just, you know, they will slaughter an animal for you to eat. So they slaughtered this goat and then you, you see on the top of their gur tents, you see all the innards drying on top of it. And then you see the skin drying on a, on, on a stump over there. So they're really using every single piece of these animals um, because that's the way, I guess, we all once lived. And even just seeing that and knowing, okay, that's not a possibility for all of us to live in that way, but you you don't forget it and you really take those sort of lessons about, oh, yeah, uh, don't waste things. You take that back to your life. And I certainly did from that trip. You just might not take yak vodka back again. No, <laughs> never again. <laughs> Nina, thank you so much for your time. Um, we're going to put the details of your upcoming trek in April uh, to Nepal up on the website and um, and it and it just sounds like such an incredible adventure. Thanks again. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Belle. That was delightful and I hope you can join us in Nepal. Oh, oh don't tempt me. <laughs> Thanks again. That was Belle, travel writer and mindful travel advocate Nina Karnikoski 
and it was really interesting about Nina's suggestion of walking in silence. If you'd like to read more of Nina's work, visit her at Nina Kanakoski. That is N-I-N-A-K-A-R-N-I-K-O-W-S-K-I.com. And to find out more about her tour to the Nepalese Himalayas, visit worldexpeditions.com. And we'll put those addresses in the show notes, which you can also see at theworldawaits.au. You're listening to The World Awaits. We'd love it if you could leave us a rating and review on your favourite podcast platform. Our tip this week is about how to save money. These tips came from the Italian Tourism Board, but really they can be applied anywhere in Europe. Oh yeah, Italy, love it, love it, love it, love it, love it, but it can be damn pricey, especially in cities such as Milan. And that's one of the key tips from the board, to choose independent hotels or guest houses on the outskirts of city centres to save money. It's a no-brainer that a hotel on Venice's Piazza San Marco is going to empty your pockets pronto. And also, look outside the big cities, so they suggest Bologna instead of Milan or Venice, or the island of Procida instead of the Amalfi Coast. And consider the time that you travel to, so accommodation is obviously a lot more expensive in peak season. And another tip is if you're not staying somewhere where you're cooking for yourself, look for Trattoria's which are Italian eateries that are much less formal than other restaurants and much cheaper, and opt for street food too. You can get really authentic food at a great price. Go sit in the park somewhere and watch the world go by. Who doesn't love doing that in Italy? And also join Italy's aperitivo hour. Most bars include snacks along with your drink. And talking bars, but at the other end of the day, stand at the bar for your coffee, which it's often a lot cheaper than sitting down in many cafes. And on the museum front, children under 18 can enter all state museums in archaeological sites and galleries for free in Italy. Just make sure your big kids have got some ID showing their age. And these um, sites are also free on the first Sunday of each month from October to March, which is out of the peak European season. So that's another bonus for travelling in the off-season. So many museums have their own tricky little free days, such as the Vatican Museums in Rome, which include the Sistine Chapel, which is free on the last Sunday of the month. But in my experience, you've got to get in early or late on those days to head off the queues. Yeah. Italy also has a fantastic train network, as do most European cities, which makes it super easy and cheap to get around. And hey, if it gets lost, well, it's just all part of the adventure, right? This week, I chatted to Neil McCulloch of First Hike Project. Neil takes refugees who are new to Australia into the Aussie outback and what is often their very first time to go hiking and camping. His one-of-a-kind initiative gives refugees a chance to experience the Australian bush and then if they wish, they can learn how to become camp guides themselves. Welcome to the show, Neil. Mm, Thanks for having me. It's so great to have you here. So let's start by telling us about how you got into travel and and ended up launching your business. Oh my goodness! Um, yeah, look, two two very separate things. I I got into travel because I had a huge wanderlust as a kid. Um, I always wanted to see the world. I was an immigrant child, so I grew up in a third in a second country. So I just always was fascinated with different cultures and the planet, and I just wanted to see as much of it as I possibly could when I left school. 
Um, and I was assisted in that because I grew up in South Africa and I had to do military service for two years um, if I stuck around. So it was just good motivation for me to get out and, um, yeah, not do military service, obviously, and, and get to see the world. So I've pretty much had a gap decade um, uh-huh. and before before settling down. Um, and that definitely influenced um, why I started First Hike Project because of the amount of generosity and kindness and patience people showed me from time to time when I was traveling and how much better I felt towards the country I was in when that happened. Like if someone took me under their wing and showed me around or showed me some of the good spots or put me up for the night or whatever it was, whatever hospitality and kindness I got definitely influenced how much I um, enjoyed that country. So after settling down, um, it was I think it was just natural that I would start something for other people um, to help them you know, connect better to the country they're in right now. And, and yeah, First Hope Project was just, uh, um, it came out of that passion and, and that sort of uh, heart, really. So tell us what, what First Hike Project is about and what you actually do. Yeah, cool. Um, well, look, it's, we aim at newly arrived youth from refugee backgrounds here in Australia. And we try and um, contact them and connect with them in the first couple of years of them being here. Uh, so what we do is we, we take groups of up to 15 youth on overnight hiking and camping adventures. We'll take them out to a national park along a hiking trail. Sometimes we'll, we'll do the whole packs, pack them in and pack them back out. Or if we've got a support vehicle, we'll take the heavy stuff to the, to the camp. But basically we want to show them, um, what we consider as the best parts of Australia, the out, out in the bush, nature, uh, hiking trails, national parks, that sort of thing, and, and with the idea of helping them settle here in Australia and also feel more connected to Australia um, as a whole. And then whereabouts exactly do you go? Oh, all over. So I started this in Perth, um, and Perth's just got this wonderful resource called the Bibbulmun Track. And it goes from Perth all the way down to Albany. It's a thousand kilometer um, hiking track. Um, and every 15 kilometers, there's a hut and water. And it's just an amazing resource that's absolutely free. Uh, so we used that for years and years um, in the beginning. And then when we opened up different branches, so we opened up Sydney, Melbourne, Canberra, and Brisbane all at the same time, around about 2018, I think, um, maybe 19. Um, and I really rely on local knowledge so that coordinators and the volunteer groups figure that out for themselves where to take them. But generally, we try and aim so it's not too hard and not too easy, um, not too long either, so under 10 kilometres maybe a day, um, because we want them really to enjoy it rather than, than it be a boot camp type um, weekend away. So just really trying to gauge where to go on like and, and giving them the overall package and making sure that they enjoy it as well. So, and, and what do you see the benefits are? Like, how how do they actually benefit from from travelling and going out hiking and camping? Oh my goodness! Um, well, I can speak for myself and say that you know through 
dark times, sad times, bad times, my go-to is the bush. Like, that's where I, I feel like all of those things start to peel away from me. There's definitely a rejuvenation aspect of nature, being in nature and just spending an extended time there. Not necessarily being super busy, but just being able to connect and sink back into those natural rhythms. So we find like the, the, the youth, we never ask them their situations and, and what led them to here, but you can just imagine, you know, someone who's had to seek asylum in, a, in another country has gone through some sort of trauma. Um, so we, we hear anecdotal all the time just how impactful and amazing that experience is for them after all they've been through to take them to the most peaceful place being nature um it really has it really is worth its weight in gold um to these participants and and you were saying to me that you know some some of these people had never even seen or slept in a sleeping bag <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, and to us it seems crazy right so i've been brought up and hiking camping outdoor pursuits is just part of our lexicon that's just what we do as europeans that that seems to be like a pastime that's been passed out from forever for us and i just assumed that that was universal until starting this well until just before starting it it was it was after finding out that a lot of these uh newly arrived people in the country don't and haven't ever heard of it and don't know about hiking and camping. They would never just, um, they would never invent it themselves. So to hear about it was, you know, you saw all these wide eyes going like, what, you go and sleep in the bush and take a tent and a sleeping bag? What are all these things? So it was through that interaction, those interactions I was having with people um, and this desire to pay pay the good fortune back or their um yeah, the, the generosity I was traveling sort of pay that back. So taking yeah, taking those groups out has been we've had to really learn as we go. So not not having experienced any of this culture before, everything was a mystery to them. So that the cookers are a mystery. Now, and when I say that, it's not everybody. Some are completely comfortable in that environment, but. When they haven't had any experience with it, we really have to show them what a sleeping bag is, what a tent is, what the liner is. We, we do show and tell with like all of the gear in the in the, the hiking bags, which we didn't think we had to do with hiking, but we've had a couple of instances where people have not known say what a sleeping bag is, and they've had a cold night in a tent yeah. on the mattress, oh, staring at this bag. At, that wouldn't solve all their problems, but they had no idea what it was and then didn't want to pull it out. So, yeah, we do show and tells. And, and, and what are some of the most rewarding things you see out of, um, you know, setting up this business? Like, And what sort of feedback do you get from, from some of the people you've taken on board? What are the sort of things they're saying about um, how impactful it's been for them? You know, we get everything. We have everything from... Um, people saying that it was the best experience of their life so far. Um, that, hands down, you know, that was the best comment I've ever got. But we also get comments from people going, thanks for the experience, but I never want to do this again. <laughs> um, you know, the idea of hiking and camping is one thing, but it's just, it's not for everybody. But we, we're glad to take everybody out. 
um, we really want to spread that experience, um, whether they want to continue it on afterwards or not. You know, and we don't see it as a pass or a fail whether we do that or not. I think it people either gravitate to it or they don't. But by by and large, we have a huge um, positive response from our past participants, and I know we connect with them on social media and stuff like afterwards, so we can see. You know, they you might find that in another couple of months, there's pictures of my family at the same national park that we took the uh, uh, the participant to for the hike, and you go, um, there's a there's feedback, like it's not direct feedback, but I'm I'm sure that it's there's a we've got to trust our top quest as well as where to go, and then that gets picked up and, and taken into their communities afterwards as well. Yeah, amazing. Um, look, there's a very moving video on your website too, and we'll put we'll put the link in the show notes, and also how uh, people who love hiking um, and travellers can actually get involved in 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 a volunteer role. But um, just to end our interview today, we we always ask our interviewees tell us what's the most bizarre situation you've ever found yourself in in your travels. <laughs> um, well, the one that sticks out um, hands hands down is. Having the the um, bottom slash off of a cooked sheep's face up a mountain in Morocco, and I and and I've got a pretty good constitution, but I just knew that this was going to taste it. And we had a we had a good two day hike out of there, our donkeys and everything, and um, that was like absolutely the worst experience of my life. Next day, the next couple of days. Um, just did not sit well, but we had stayed with these um, this these mountain families for you know probably good on two weeks, and there was no way I was going to turn down this this feast that they put on for us. It was a, it was a celebration and an honour. Uh, well, I just don't have to. I'm going to have to do this. Um, <laughs> yeah, with the Alaskas across. You would have been taking one for the team for me if I was there uh, as well, but yeah. <laughs> Yes. Oh, oh well, look, yeah. it's, it's been so great to talk to you, Neil, and congratulations on your incredible initiative, and we will put all the information in the show notes. What an incredible initiative Neil has launched, and there's a really moving video on his website, which you can check out. Take a look at firsthikeproject.org.au. And if you want to get involved as a hiking guide, all the information is on that website. That's a wrap for The World Awaits this week. Click to subscribe anywhere you listen to your favourite pods. And where can people find you, Kirsty? I'm at Kirsty Writes on Instagram. That's K-I-R-S-T-I-E Writes, W-R-I-T-E-S. And where can people find you, Belle? You can find me at globalsalsa.com or on Insta at global underscore salsa. Thanks for listening. See you next week.